Hello, Wi-Fi Pioneers, and welcome to Episode 8 of the Wi-Fi Pioneer Podcast. We are your hosts, Colt and Remington. Say hi, Remy. Hey, what's up, guys? Today, we're going to start by clarifying a couple of things we talked about in the last episode. Um, we were talking about EBITDA, and um, we got got the explanation a little backwards on the calculations. We also wanted to clarify what we were talking about with sustainable debt levels. So that's what going to be our starting point. And from there, we're going to go into more of small business loans and just how to work those to your advantage. And depending on time, a couple other topics. So uh, let's jump in on the EBITDA. Uh, Remy, if you could explain what that is to begin with before we get to the calculation. Yeah, so I was talking about why uh, small business valuation multiples and why it's it's dumb to think just in terms of EBITDA multiples. Um, and then when I listened to the podcast, I realized that what I explained EBITDA, the definition of EBITDA, was the exact opposite of what I was trying to say. So uh, EBITDA is a measure of the operating income. So before subtracting depreciation and amortization. Um, and basically all you have to do is spell out the acronym. So earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Uh, that's all it is. Nothing too complicated. Quick Google search will fill you in, but uh, obviously a really important term to get familiar with. Um, and then the second thing was uh, uh, Colt had asked me about sustainable debt levels, like what level of, of debt is sustainable on your personal balance sheet. And I kind of uh, avoided the question because I don't think in those terms. Um, I don't think of sustainable debt uh, as a baseline. I think of sustainable debt in its downside scenario. Uh, and that's because um, with debt, most of the risk of leverage isn't on the surface, it's tail risk. Uh, and this this fundamental characteristic of debt is why banks lose so much money, especially state and local banks. Uh, they take risks and make loans that appear sustainable on the surface. For example, you know, that a borrower has a 1.3 debt service coverage ratio, meaning like they have enough money coming in to pay their uh, their loan expenses in terms of, well, not loan expenses, their loan payments in terms of amortization and interest. And then they have, say, a 30% cushion above that. Um, but uh, it, it, it can create the appearance that you're a creditworthy borrower or you're, or you're a sound business by just meeting these debt service coverage ratios because you're continuously making payments. But if anything goes wrong, that borrower could massively default. Plus, this happens all the time in these small banks, a lot of the other loans in their portfolio are going to default at the same time. So a bank basically has two settings. One is collecting regular payments and appearing profitable and sustainable. And then two is hemorrhaging cash and going bankrupt until the Federal Treasury bails them out. There's only two settings. So long story short, be smarter than the banks. Don't run your personal balance sheet that way. You have to manage your blow-up risk. Don't think of what debt can, what debt can I sustain uh, based on current conditions. Think of what debt can I sustain if everything goes to hell in handbasket? That's how you use debt sustainably. So just be the opposite of a bank is long story short. Okay. Yeah. So it's another way of rephrasing that. I'm going to try to give a real world example. Hopefully I won't butcher it, but if you're, you're running a um, cash flow positive business and let's say it's uh, making you 5k a month, um, uh, 5k a month after your, your base expenses and you say well i can sustain a debt level now of increase to 5k a month well that's everything running nice and smooth you got to look at what's going to happen in a in your either your slow months if it's a seasonal based business or if there's some kind of economic downturn what do you expect your your gross revenue to be month to month and that's where you base your your debt load at not off of perfect conditions off of the worst conditions yeah and in the financial world they call this stress testing uh and um, obviously, they put banks through these episodes. I've, I'll leave it up to the audience to decide how good they are at it. Um, but the basic case is, imagine everything goes to hell. So not just one or two things going bad. Everything, when it goes bad, usually many, many things go bad at the same time. So game out those scenarios, see what your contingencies are, figure out what kind of options you have in that scenario. And that's how you come to a, a level of sustainable debt. And only you know that, right? Because only you know all the complexity and details of your personal balance sheet and your earning potential and uh, the downside earnings and all that stuff. So only you can make that that judgment. Banks are going to use really crude criteria that, uh, well, as Taleb says, uh, cause them to lose every dollar they ever make. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the interesting thing about it is there's no easy source to go to, to figure this out because every business has its own, um, 
its own complexities, like you said. It's got its own supply chains, its own customer base, and you can't compare it to a different field. And even um, like type businesses in different regions of the country have different uh different problems. So it's really up to you to figure out your sustainable debt level. You can't just go online and look for an easy calculator for it because it's not a universal calculation. Yep. Banks do uh, what we call like two brain cell lending, right? They make an investment decision based on as little information and as little analysis as possible. Don't, don't do that. Do the exact opposite. Like understand the, the richness and complexity of your particular situation and what you can handle. And, and if you're really good at, at just, doing the Indiana Jones thing and, and somehow making it work when everything looks all lost. Yeah, that's that's a relevant uh, trait, right? That's a relevant character trait to being able to survive downturns. Uh, bank's never going to give you any credit for that, but you will. Yeah, well, that, and that's the irony of it is the from my experience with the the small business association and uh, the pulling a loan from them, they want to see a business plan, but the business plan is largely a work of fiction plus an Excel spreadsheet. Um, the person who's reading it, the underwriter, they've never run a business. They don't know the complexities of it. They just have spreadsheets and charts, and they want to go, well, last year the business did this, and your plan is going to add 20% to that, so good to go. As long as you can show a planned increase, they're happy with it. But they have no idea if, if what you're handing them is a work of fiction or a, an actual business plan. They have no clue. So you, it's up to you to figure that out. Yeah, and that's actually the perfect segue into talking a little more about um, small business acquisitions, small business financing. And we'd, we talked about this before in a podcast, but um, a lot more to add here. And I'll just preface this by saying, man, I really got it wrong. Like, I, I did things way harder than they need to be. I went the venture route, tech startups, you know, massive failure rates. Like, most of these companies are lucky to have a 1 in 10 hit rate. Uh, way easier way to do it is... These, these really like standard small businesses that have solid cash flows and good downside protection, the thing that I did not realize is how um, how easy the government makes it for you to get a hold of one of these uh, in terms of the down payment you need. So the, the basic gist of it is that the SBA is going to give you, say, 80-85% of a, 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 the capital stack or, or the total proceeds you need to buy the business. Um, on an eligible business. Now, what are the, what's an eligible business? That's that's something you can just go to the SBA website. They'll do a good job of explaining that. But they give you essentially the same leverage that you need to buy a house. So that's a tremendous amount of leverage for a small business, especially with the the income and profit variability of a small business. So they really, I mean, they really pull the branch all the way down for you. Then you can also use, I think sometimes a, a, a what's called a like a seller note or whoever is selling you the business can lend you a little bit of the money uh, to, to buy the business. And what's important is um, it's a typically a subordinated note and the SBA allows that. So that means that the SBA is getting paid first and then the seller is getting paid after that. But you can also grab an investor. Um, and obviously there's some, there's some considerations about securities laws that you have to navigate, but just get it done. Like, like don't let that stand in your way, figure it out. Uh, and you know, if you, let's say you give somebody 10% of the business or 15% of the business, they don't have to sign a personal guarantee on the SBA loan. Uh, that's a big deal. Um, and so you can literally take down one of these, uh, one of these operating businesses with real cash flow and an immediate paycheck that in a lot of cases is well north of a hundred grand immediate. Um, and, and the government will help you do it and, and make it really, really easy to get there. I wish I'd realized this. It's, a lot of these businesses are not complicated. In fact, we talked about the the large segment of boomers retiring. You know how many of these boomers are dying for somebody to buy their business? And they will train you to buy the business. Yeah. Um, okay, you hit a lot of things there that, that sparked my memory here. So it, it's difference of, of perspective, right? Because you had said your your background dealing with venture capitalism and raising raising uh, money through through private uh, lenders and stuff that way versus when I went through the SBA process, I was comparing it to the process of buying a house because, you know, for those that were old enough, you know, the, the Gen X and boomers, they remember back when you used to have to put down 20% uh, on a house to get a mortgage. And with the easy lending post 2000 or I guess pre 2008, all the way till present now, you're able to get some uh, mortgages, Without, without including VA and stuff, like 5% down, hardly any money down at all uh, to buy a house. 
So when you go through the uh, Small Business Administration, the SBA, and they want 15% down, that's considered a substantial amount of skin in the game. They actually think that 15% keeps you very well leveraged in the business, and um, it's a substantial loss if the business goes down. So they feel 15% is enough to keep you from uh, blowing the loan. And when compared to mortgages and home lending, it is. It's triple what you need to put down. So it seems like it. But coming from the world of, of venture capitalism and whatnot, it, seems, it probably seems like it's a very little amount of money to put in. Yeah, yeah, definitely a very small amount of money to put in. And you're buying an established business. So there's a predictability of cash flows. You're not betting the farm, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so it just... The, the key to getting off the ground, the key to getting airborne is just getting a reasonable asset base so you're not um, totally dependent on an employer to provide the next paycheck two weeks from now to survive. And the SBA makes that really easy. Uh, the, the whole, um, well, half the game is understanding the SBA program, which I, you know, several years ago did not understand or I definitely would have done this. Uh, finding a highly capable SBA lender, they're not all the same. Like some are way better than others. Uh, and then the other half is choosing a small business that doesn't devour your life or hold you hostage so that you can continue growing these other sources of income, your Wi-Fi money, all that stuff, uh, be able to keep compounding that in your spare hours or find something that merges well with running both businesses um, and buy a business that isn't becoming obsolete. Um, your investors will probably require some say in what you sell the business for uh, since they're in a first loss position. So. Um, remember that if you're not able to get them the return they want, they may be, you may be stuck there until you do. Uh, so uh, keep that in mind when you buy the business. Um, and, and I guess two more things like pick a business that doesn't severely limit your employee pool. For example, if you need class A CDL drivers, you might be desperate for them and they be so, they may be so scarce, uh, that they can hold you over a barrel and they essentially own your company. Um, and then second is, uh, pick a business that doesn't require a lot of constant in-person oversight of employees, such as say like a delivery service or hauling junk or something like that. You can coordinate employees remotely uh, and you don't have to hold their hand all day. And then bonus points, uh, if you pick a long-standing business that just needs some marketing or tech stack adjustments, there's a lot of upside there. Yeah, that's that's a big one. You, you don't want to be held hostage by your employees. If you're, if you're uh, buying into a business that you intend to run part-time, some people have to understand there's no such thing as passive income. Passive income always needs some kind of input. Now, you can have minimal input in a type of business. If all you're doing is you know directing drivers around throughout the day, you can have a good dispatcher. You can have something that works well there, but you can't just wipe your hands of it and walk away. You can't just hand the keys to a manager and be like, run my business for me. You have to know the ins and outs, and you have to know how it's working. But the better you are at that, the better you can delegate and then thus offload uh, the, your time to to get into other things, whether it be digital marketing, uh, upscaling the business, or doing a whole other enterprise. You can definitely run two businesses at the same time, but you can't just um, hand it to a manager and walk away. You can't just leave it on autopilot and uh, all the time. You have to have involvement and knowledge of how it works. And that's where a lot of the people who purchase a business that's already established go wrong is they think they're just going to buy it and be a um, hands-off quiet uh, owner. And usually those businesses fail. You have to have some involvement. Yeah. Great point. And uh, there's a happy medium there because this is going to sound kind of counterintuitive, but uh, you need to be able to take long vacations from your company. If you ever want to sell it is if the company's value depends on you being there every day, it's going to be really hard for you to exit that company or get a decent valuation if you do exit. So uh, I think it's actually a good practice to be able to step away from the business for a fair amount of time. Obviously, like you said, there's no such thing as completely passive income. It's going to require some kind of active management, but routinely build in an exercise where you step away from the company for a while and see how it operates and then fix those things that come to the surface before you look to sell the company. Or, I mean, let's be honest, you're going to want that capability anyway. Because uh, you don't want to be wedded to that thing. Um, then the other kind of closing thought, well, it sounded like you had something there, but um, the other thought that came to mind is that uh, if you have substantial financial capital of your own to invest in the company, great. But that's not always a good thing because uh, you'll actually need uh, post-closing post liquidity to manage the business. So keep some dry powder. Don't Don't spend it all 
uh, make sure that you hold some of your own in reserve to be able to manage after they close. Okay, um, two really good points. Let me jump to your first one. Yeah, the happy medium, exactly it. Um, when we when I say you can't be completely passive on your income, you have to have some involvement. What you want is every hour you uh, sink into your business to pay back tenfold. So upfront, when you're working 80, 90 hour weeks, that's not going to be a sustainable model for a decade. You want, you're doing that for the first six months, first year, two years, so that you get explosive growth and, and profitability out of the business. But you want to be able to scale back at a certain point. Otherwise your business owns you. And you see that with a lot of these guys who they're, you know, um, their whole life revolves around their business and they can't stop. They don't, uh, a lot of his leadership failing. They never train employees to help off, uh, lessen the workload. Um, so they're just going nonstop. So you definitely want to be able to take vacations for your own mental health and just, you know, you want to run your business. You don't want it to run you. Um, the second thing was, yeah, having that extra capital when I, and I don't know if they still do this. It could be a difference of lenders, but when, when I did my small business loan, we had to put up 15%, but then once the loan process and we purchased the business, we wound up getting, it equated to about 8% of the down payment back. So we got about half of our down payment money back in cash. So we'd have something to, well, uh, not cash, but in the bank, in the bank account, the business account to be able to run the business for the first few months. They knew, they understood that we'd have to have liquidity go into it. So they're like, as long as you can put the liquidity up, you actually get a good chunk of it back to run the business. So that's, that's something to consider too. Um, ask them about that. You know, if you're, are you putting down 15% and it's going into the purchase or are you getting some startup capital as well? Cause it's stuck to put down 50 grand and realize you have to have the second 50 grand just to keep things going right out the gate. Uh, yeah. But one of the things that I keep running into in the small business world is how much people talk about how they want to, um, they want veterans to buy these small businesses, how much lenders want veterans to be managing these small businesses. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? How, how good are, uh, military members, veterans, uh, good at running a, a new small business or at least a stabilized small business that they're coming into? If they were a good officer and by officer, I mean, uh, rank of captain or under, uh, because once you hit major, you're, you're no longer a soldier, you're a politician. Uh, but, if they were captain or under or a good NCO, a good sergeant, um, sergeant, staff sergeant, et cetera, there's a good good correlation because an effective leader in the military doesn't have a lot to do. He trains his soldiers to replace him, and he trains the soldiers. And, and I say soldiers. It works for Marines, sailors. Don't beat me up, guys. Um, he trains his subordinates to take over his position, and doesn't have a whole lot to do himself except put out fires. His, his squad, his platoon, his company is running really well uh, in spite of his absence or his presence, and thus he's able to put out fires. If you're like that in the military, you, that translates over into the business world. So, um, you know, just like any other industry, veterans come in good quality and bad quality. If you were a shit sergeant, if you were a micromanager, you're going to be a shit business owner. But for the ones who are able to lessen their workload, they'll, they'll do really well. They'll excel. Yeah. Interesting. I personally, um, I, I haven't run a lot of mainstream businesses, uh, just off my instincts, I would say, yeah, I would expect uh, a competent, um, NCO or, or junior officer to be really effective in a, in a small business, um, provided all the things that you just said, I think you nailed it. Um, the one caveat I would say is on the tech side, um, I think coming from the military can be a major disadvantage sometimes just because of the brain damage that, that happens, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. all the absurdity of, of that organization. So, uh, keep that in mind. Um, of course, there's a lot of super all-stars, like just next level human beings who happen to be in the military because they're doing badass things in the military. Those people come over in, into the, the private sector and basically crush whatever thing that they get involved in. So I, I think it'd be silly to, to bet against any of those people, but aside from those people, you know, like 90% of the military, um, it's, it could be hit or miss on the tech side. Uh, if it's a main street business, yeah, I think they're going to typically going to nail it if they're a good NCO or a good officer. Yeah. Cause 
there's a, there's a lot of lobotomizing that goes on with the uh, upper ranks as well. But the biggest thing is in today's military, there is no accountability for failure. You, you move on in spite of failure and you learn nothing. When you take that into the business world, you fail because there's the government isn't there to clean up your, your incompetence for you. Um, that's why a lot of the, the special forces and infantry communities, they do really well coming into the private sector and into the business sector because those are still areas where competency holds key, you know, to reign supreme. And you can't get away with being inept. You can't get away with failure after failure uh, for the most part. So they have that mindset of accountability and they bring that to the business. Whereas on the other side of it, if you've never been held accountable for your failures, you can't run a business that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned something about uh, you were, you were dealing with some whole life insurance um, pitches this week. How did that go? Uh, so I just saw it on Twitter where uh, basically they're talking about the infinite banking concept is what they call it, where you're just borrowing from your whole life insurance plan. And I went, I, you know, I went down that rabbit hole of like 10 years ago, so I'm a little fuzzy on some of the details. I just remember that it, nobody who ever does that ever seems to come out ahead. It seems like a, a poor man's way of staying poor, and then you just run around advertising to others and arguing with them even though you're still poor. Um, do you have any experience in that, that area? Well, I'd say that the first thing is whenever a big company is marketing something like this, uh, almost all the time they're trying to fool you because if it were a good idea, like – Somebody else would be, you would, you would find it somewhere else and the big company wouldn't be offering it to you. They're offering it to you because you're the sucker at the table. Um, so I actually, last year I was, I was getting a term life insurance and, um, I had an insurance broker trying forever to sell me a whole life policy. I can't tell you how many times I said no. And they kept bringing it back to that conversation. And that's what I, I hadn't really dealt with it before that. And then I was like, man, if they're trying that, that hard to push it, it's probably because they need suckers. So then I dove in a little more. And uh, I mean, yeah, it's just a massive marketing play. Don't fall for it. Uh, when you actually look under the hood, it's a terrible idea. Um, and uh, so especially when you look at the pool of available investments that these insurance companies have to drive their guaranteed returns, quote unquote, guaranteed returns. By the way, if you hear guaranteed returns in finance, like, like just walk away. Um, <laughs> uh and once you understand what that pool of available investments is, you're like, oh, the math doesn't add up. Um, it, they, I mean, to really, in a nutshell, uh, if you're buying these whole life policies, you're bailing out all these bankrupt companies and governments that issue debt that they can't repay and equity at ridiculous multiples that will never bail, bear out in real terms. It's as simple as that. Uh, you heard about all these insolvent pension funds. Whole life insurance is just a pension fund that you can borrow against. You can already do that with your IRA. At least with your IRA, you have some control over the investments. Whole life insurance goes in the exact opposite direction of all the themes in, in our podcast. Personal accountability, responsibility, uh, initiative, um, self-sovereignty. Like Whole life policy goes precisely against every one of those things. Yeah, well, that's why it remains the sucker's bet. Because if you're constantly looking for somebody else to have accountability over your life, yeah, we'll see how far you get. So, um, anyway, I think, I think that's enough of that one. Uh, we'll see what people have to say about it and maybe come back to it later, but there's nothing positive to say about whole life insurance on either of our ends. So we'll just leave it at that. Um, one thing I forgot to mention in the last podcast is too, is, uh, you know, we're talking about, you can just go buy a business. Um, both places I bought, I went to a website called biz buy sell, uh, this is not necessarily an endorsement of them. This is just my experience using them. But it's like going on a real estate website and looking for houses. It's no different. You're just going on, and it's got all the businesses for sale. Uh, you put in a zip code and a certain mileage, and it'll tell you what's available in your area. And you just it, it, they'll they'll give you numbers to look at. They'll give you a basic PNL uh, statement, a description of what the business is doing and why they're selling. And you can use that uh, as a really good screening method to figure out if you even want to give them a call. Um, with a lot of it, you have people who are simply moving, retiring, whatever, and they'll say that straight up. Owners owners moving, willing to finance. And those are some of the things we talked about using to your advantage because they'll train you and they'll help you come up with some of the capital you need to buy the business. So um, give. I'm sure there's other websites uh, that do it, but you can give that one a check too just to see, how it, uh, see what you think of it. 
Yeah, a couple, couple points so, to add there. So uh, a lot of those listings are listed by a broker, like a small business broker. Uh, and like any broker, right, they're taking an intermediary fee for lining up the buyers and sellers, and usually they're paid by the seller, I believe. But their fees are incredible, like 10%, massive. So keep in mind what that means if you see a broker listed on that uh, for sale listing. Uh, that means the seller is paying them a ton of money to put that business on a website. Can you put a business on a website? I mean, <laughs> think about yeah. how much that is. If that's a $2 million business, you're paying that broker $200,000 to create a website listing. Uh, so keep that in mind. And what that says about whoever you're buying the business from, uh, there's definitely some some selection criteria there where people are, uh, you know, a seller is telling you a little about how they run their business. If they're willing to pay somebody 200 grand just to list it on a website. That being said, I have seen some better uh, models coming up in terms of how you um, how you match buyers and sellers. So there's some other websites, uh, names escape me at the moment. I want to say it's like dealbuilder.co or something where they essentially just provide a conduit for buyers and sellers to meet and their their fees are massively reduced. Now, I'm obviously, I'm not, not compensated by these guys in any way. I just saw their business model and was like, that's definitely an improvement. Um, I think they take like 3% fees instead of 7%. And then they worked out the incentive problem where, um, where they just kind of have a person who's there to facilitate the deal, who's not necessarily paid for getting the deal done. Um, so in the same reason that you have a problem when you're, when you hire a realtor to either list or, uh, or buy you a house or help you buy a house, they have a massive incentive to do a transaction, even if it's the wrong transaction for you. Uh, any sort of broker who's compensated that way has the same incentive. Uh, so there's some different business models coming up where, uh, people are actually just there to, there's a, a brokerage, so to speak, or a software pl platform that's operating as a brokerage, so to speak, that's there to act as a conduit to match buyers and sellers. They do a good job of pre-vetting the, the sellers and the buyers, in my, in my opinion, which is the real value out of a broker uh, is to keep you from wasting your time on all these transactions that aren't going to happen. Uh, and then they provide, you know, a service for advising how to structure the deal to get it done to make everybody happy. So it's much more like, arbitration versus, uh, <laughs> although that may be a bad analogy, um, cause that would be like a lawsuit, but, uh, they're much more facilitators and their fee structure is way more in line with the actual value that they're adding. Um, whereas most brokers I see their value they're adding is just, uh, minimal compared to their fees. Yeah. That's really good points on all of that. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of the reasons why they're still using the expensive brokers, at least on the business end, is because it's not such a uh, big competitive model like real estate became. There's very few people doing the, the brokerage for aligning uh, people with businesses. I mean, the amount of people that still don't know you can buy a business or that they can sell it online. like um, So that it's they kind of cornered the market on that one, at least for the time being. It'll be interesting to see how, how the new models uh, pan out using these uh, intermediaries instead of the, the brokerage website. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause well, and it's, it just made me think about a lot of people wonder why we even have realists realtors to begin with when they're taking roughly 7% per sale, when you could do the sale yourself. But what the data has shown on that is using a realtor typically gets you the highest price. Um, when you sell, sell by owner, what usually happens is that the owner winds up taking a 7% less offer uh, than we have had to use a realtor. So it winds up balancing out to the same uh, price at the end, only you did all the work yourself. That seems to be the number one reason you use the realtor is because you wind up wasting your time to get the same price. Uh, and not too many people are able to sell at a higher or equal or higher level that the uh, realtor would get. So it'll be interesting to see with the business uh, model, if it winds up being the same thing that they wind up settling for smaller numbers anyways, I'll be interested to see how that plays out in the long run. So I have a pretty controversial take on, on uh, real estate realtors. Uh, okay. <laughs> there, I've seen some people on the commercial real estate side really add some value in terms of screening buyers uh, and facilitating the transaction. In my opinion, yeah. not worth their fees because their fees are so massive in commercial real estate. Um, but uh, in terms of absolute numbers, right? If you sell a, a, a $30 million building, what's the math on that? Like that could be 
uh, easily a million dollars in commissions yeah. for the real estate broker, like ridiculous. Um, but on the residential side, uh, I think that there's the entire reason that model has persisted the way it is, is the lobbying power of the National Association of Realtors. And they've basically forced everybody else to come through them if you want to execute a housing transaction. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if that you've seen a lot of competitors arise in that model to try to uh, circumvent that process, because um, if you're paying 7% of the value of your house to transact on it, and that's a huge sum, huge sum, especially when the average person owns their house five to seven years, it means you're paying your realtor 1% of the real value of your house a year, a year. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, you and know, I wonder don't... if, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead, go ahead. Well, there's no value creation in it. If you, if you think about the actual money changing hands, um, there's no value creation or very little value creation in a realtor participating in the transaction. Houses prim primarily sell themselves because we have websites that everybody goes to to find the house they want. Uh, you might need some advice in terms of pricing strategy or or how you actually control the um, the, the sales timing, right? So how do you how do you attract buyers at the right time of the week so that you can conduct an offer and and um, and take bids and such and and control the process to to a successful conclusion? Yeah, there's there's an art to that, but it's not complicated and it's not worth seven percent. Yeah, you know, I'm wondering, you mentioned the, the National Association of Realtors. I wonder if they're the ones who burned it into our heads that if when you see a house that says for sale by owner, you can lowball them. And that's become a side effect of that because that's what happens. People see for sale by owner and they go, well, if we don't have to pay commissions to a realtor. I can pay him less. And the whole reason you're selling it, yeah. the whole reason you're selling it yourself is because you want to pocket that commission. And in the end, you wind up taking a bid that's lower that would have been the realtor's commission anyway. So I wonder if it's just that, that that's been burned into our heads that when somebody says for sale by owner, you're supposed to lowball them and not respect their price. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And the other thing that happens is if you have a realtor and you're not willing to offer 3% commissions, um, they blackball your listing. So they basically force you to come through them. It's, it's that thing where if you own the only bridge in town, you charge people insane tolls to cross it. And if you're able to control planning and zoning and, and civil buildings and such, you prevent anybody else from building a bridge. Same thing, exact same thing. And there've been some really interesting projects to try to reduce the fees involved in selling your house because it shouldn't cost that much. Um, but they always get, I mean, they're a direct threat to this massive cash cow that realtors have, uh, which is you have to pay 7% of your business or six or sorry, 7% of your house price or 6% of your house price, whatever it is in your locale, uh, they they basically have the golden goose and they're not going to let you kill it. Yeah, so what do you see as a solution to that, um, to, to circumvent and get around that 7% fee in their, their little monopoly in there? Uh, I mean, if I had it, I would be making a lot of money off of it. But um, I think there's, a, like I said, those there's a lot of uh, listing sites that are pretty darn close to it. It's, it's something, some kind of combination of, um, having one, one place where people can meet to buy and sell online, um, some sort of, uh, facilitator that allows, you know, you to go see the house in person, um, and then kind of, uh, coordinates all the buyer's bids. So they come in around the same time and then advises you as a seller on, you know, your pricing strategy that, that is not worth, let's say for a million dollar house, that is not worth $60,000. That's worth maybe five grand. I wonder then if it's just somebody who uh, basically you reduce the, the real estate agent down to a virtual assistant. Yeah, that's exactly what it's going to become, especially when you get a lot more market data out there and, and you're able to see, you're able to develop your own pricing strategy or you're able to, yeah, as you said, get a virtual assistant. So if I get a, if I get on a zoom call with a realtor and I describe the situation and they kind of advise me on the process, that's a 30 minute phone call and I would happily pay them $500 for it. That's an insane wage for them. But it also means that the amount of realtors is going to contract drastically because you're going to get the the market is going to um, rapidly converge to a point where their value is equivalent to their fees. <laughs> yeah. So there's just not that much cash to go around for all of them. And a few of them are going to make a lot of money because they're sought after and the rest are not going to be worth anything. It's the same, same theme you're seeing everywhere, right? Like 
the tiny 1% ends up grabbing 90% of the market share or more. And, uh, and everybody else has just kind of like realized that they didn't actually bring any value. They were just protected by the system and the market structure. Yeah. I wonder if what it really boils down to is that the, the realtor's main value is that when they're showing the house, somebody has to walk through and grab, grab your shit. Like, yeah, yeah. It almost it almost seems like that's the, the biggest thing because their whole strategy, not whole strategy, uh, one of the, the side effects of their strategy is you never actually see the buyer. You're always separated from the buyer and the seller, never see each other. And I wonder if that's just to, to keep the realtor's um, monopoly going or is there actually a problem with buyers and sellers talking to each other? That's a classic problem in the brokerage industry, right? The a broker's always worried about getting cut out of a deal. And so they build these contracts that have some teeth in them that prevent you from going around them. That's perfectly legitimate. I mean, if you're connecting two buyers, or I'm sorry, a buyer and seller that would never otherwise meet, or you're figuring out some way to conduct a transaction that makes it happen in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to do, there's real value in that, right? You've, you've created a, a, um, uh, a lot of value for the, the seller and the buyer. Um, but there's a, there's plenty of brokerage transactions where all they're doing is elbowing their way into the into the fees, uh, and they didn't actually add any value. Uh, the 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 interaction was already going to take place. The transaction was already going to take place, and the buyers just um, basically used lobbying power and and rule of law to secure themselves a paycheck. Yeah, be interesting to see how this this progresses over the next ten years. So, but um, you also mentioned basically how you know, every all these markets they diverge into the one percent, taking the majority of the the profits. That's always like the Pareto distribution, you know, 80, the eighty twenty rule. Twenty percent does the work of does half the work, eighty percent does the other work, and we we tend to see financial models and success always converge to the top one percent, making the most money, um, and taking their share of it. And people look at that as a negative, but really, and we mentioned this in our very first podcast, it's not that hard to be in the top 1%. You just have to be in the right field that fits to your skills. Um, people are looking at all these different things as uh, as if the 1% is, is just completely unattainable. But think about it. Look at your, your small businesses. Businesses that start up from scratch, it's something like 80% fail. And that in... And then the next 20%, a lot of them are living hand to mouth. The ones that are cleaning house are the, the top 1% or making the big money. Same thing with e-commerce, Wi-Fi business, podcasts, and, and influencers, and whatever whatever niche you're getting into, top 1% wins. Um, writing, Substacks, published, published books, independent published books, all these, they're not out of your reach. Being in the 1% is not out of your reach. You just have to find the right skill set to to mirror up to get to that one percent niche that's it um it's not unobtainable and in most of these just getting the top 20 percent requires consistent effort over three months yeah and at the same time very important that you quickly embark on that process identifying where you can compete at an elite level um, because most of the most of the mediocrity is going to get washed out and they're going to be looking for a paycheck somewhere and they're going to be on ubi yeah, and that's that's the thing. All all the people that want to be a wage cuck, they're gonna stay wage cucks. You just have to try a little a little bit harder than them to really excel. Um, and that and that's everything. Like if you want to be amongst the most fit people, if you want to be the most attractive people uh, in this country, you just need to wash with soap. And that puts you in the top twenty percent, right? To be the top twenty percent most attractive man, just wash your body on a daily basis. To be you know, to be in the top 5%, you have to go to the gym and actually, you know, take care of your body, eat well. But just the bar is so low right now. And in business, it's the same thing. You're, you keep seeing these TikTok videos of these kiddo daycare centers where they're, uh, they're, you're eat, they're eating in a cafeteria like it's still at high school. And they're, they're getting massages at work and their little think rooms and meditation rooms. They're not doing any real work. And too many people think that that's an actual life worth uh, living in, and that's a real achievement. But if that's your competition, you can easily be in the 1%. Easily. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I think the real impediment to getting there is just the time that it takes in compounding your, uh, your personal net worth. Right. Uh, and personally for me, uh, I, 
had to spend a lot of years making rich people a lot of money simply because I didn't have the assets or bargaining power to drive terms where I was compensated for the value I was bringing. Um, so the key is once you can get off square one, then you have real negotiating leverage. And that's why uh, I keep harping on this, getting into a small business because it's such a quick, um, <laughs> kind of like in Mario Kart, when you hit the little like zoom up chevrons, it's, it's one of those things. It allows you to get off square one really quickly so that you're compounding from, say, a million-dollar asset base instead of a $50,000 asset base. Uh, and then as you're, as you're you know, growing your net worth at 50% a year, you're pretty quickly an ultra-high net worth individual you know, within a decade or maybe two versus if you're starting from $50,000, uh, you got to go 20x to get to a million. Yeah, and... And also, when, you, when you're looking at the, the networks you're building, too, when you want to leverage up um, or bring your business to the next level and you're talking to the multi-million dollar players, when you come to them as a $200,000 a year wage cuck, they're not going to hold you in the same regard as somebody who started with a $50,000 business and, and brought it up to a million dollars. When they see that you you 20x your first investment, they, they go, all right, this guy clearly has the ability to 20x it again. They hold you in a lot more respect than somebody who's willing to take high wages for being a cuck. So really think about that. You know, the, the respect you pull from what, what, who the people you want to be your peer group is going to be a lot easier to obtain when you're just a smaller scale version of, of what they're doing. Man, there's so much to that. I I can't tell you how much emphasis I put on how people structure their compensation contracts or agreements. Uh, it's it's huge because it tells you how they value themselves. It tells you what they think they're good at. Uh, and generally, it, sometimes you have to. Sometimes you can't just be you know um, pay for performance because you'll attract a lot of people who are just tire kickers, um, and they'll they'll kind of like freeload until until you realize they're freeloading. Um, but so sometimes, you know, to, to enter a contract, you have to have some sort of upfront commitment from somebody to make sure you're screening out uh, all the time wasters and freeloaders. But from there on out, it's like heavily uh, performance-based compensation. And if, if somebody's opposed to that, if they just want their regular paycheck, it tells you a lot about how much, uh, how much, how motivated they are, how creative they are, how, uh, how good they are at solving problems. Because nobody who's good at solving problems would accept that. They would never accept being paid a tenth of what they're worth. Yeah. And that's, you know, on that note too, don't let imposter syndrome let you under uh, undervalue yourself. You know, really be honest with what you're worth. Now, some people are just insane and they value their themselves out at, at astronomical rates. You'll know that that's the case. People are shooting you down. But the amount of people and especially women in business who undervalue their ability when you're actually competent, you can actually produce Set your wages or, or set your pricing schedule accordingly. Don't undercut yourself. And, and women are notorious for, for not being, uh, for really underselling themselves, which leads them to be taken advantage of in the business setting. They'll, they'll get, get raked over the coals because they're not willing to charge an appropriate rate for their services. Um, but anybody in general, don't let this idea of imposter syndrome, I'm a brand new business, you know, I'm not, I can't charge what the big guys are charging. If your service or your product is worth the money, charge what it is worth. Yeah, totally agree, man. It's funny you bring that up. I've seen that exact thing. Uh, women generally um, under-negotiate or don't realize the value that they're bringing, and uh, especially because they're so good at multitasking and and operations. Um, so I've seen a lot of situations where the, the woman is actually the one running the company. She may be the number two, but she's the one running the company, and she's getting paid like 30 grand a year. <laughs> This is completely ridiculous. Um, so recognize your talents uh, and don't be afraid to reach for them and, and use the SBA capability to, to get away from the really exploitative employers who, um, who whether or not they recognize your value, aren't going to pay it. Yeah, and we talked about in our very first podcast, um, an employer literally cannot play, pay you what you're worth. Um, just It's just the nature of the, the text the tax laws and everything else, if he's paying you $20 an hour, there's another $20 per hour that he's got to pay in um, income tax, social security tax, insurance, et cetera. So in order for, for the business owner, 
if you're pay, being paid $20 an hour and you're producing $40 an hour, you're just a net zero. You're, you're not contributing anything to the business. You're just not costing anything. So if you're making your employer money and you're being paid $20 an hour, that means you're producing $60 an hour uh, worth of value to the company. And the flip side of that, of course, is the business owner is only seeing $20 of that $60, uh, $60 that you're, you're creating. So as an employee, remember, if you're a productive employee, you're worth at a minimum three times your salary, minimum of three times. And for an employer, understand that if you're hiring somebody, you're only going to get um, to keep a third of the money that they're creating for you assuming that they're a good employee. It's just that that's a rule of thumb. So remember the rule of one third. Yeah. So basic takeaway, if you're talented, you're underpaid, probably massively underpaid. So get out of the system as soon as you can. Um, and as you're thinking about how you can successfully exit the system, gave you some pointers about how to use um, SBA loans, uh, but another great source of cash or, or assets on your personal balance sheet, or at least most families, uh, is obviously your personal mortgage, and uh, I, or at least your your personal residence, your primary residence. Now, last time I just realized um, that Colt made a, a good point in episode six, um, and I believe uh, I think it was about when it makes sense to own your residence free and clear of a mortgage. Uh, and I just wanted to expand upon that because you re- made a really point that I didn't really pick up on. Uh, and the primary criteria that influences whether a mortgage is very important. Um, is how much of your personal balance sheet is tied up in the value of that house. If it's a lot, then you want the bank to take that downside risk for you through a mortgage. Remember we talked about, you know, if the price of a house drops 50%, it might be worth walking away from kind of like in the housing crisis of 2008. Um, caveat, like there's some situations you may not, that may not be the right choice, right? Uh, not financial advice, <laughs> but uh, plus if you own that house outright, um, there's a ton of your personal assets tied up in that lifestyle and it isn't productive or generating any real increase in value. Uh, so if your personal residences are a large fraction of your net worth, mortgages are pretty important for limiting the risk to falling housing prices uh, and for improving the productivity and efficiency of your personal balance sheet. So you can take some of that money and put it into a business, drastically change your life, You know, start getting paid what you're worth. Uh, if the house is a tiny fraction of your net worth, then it doesn't matter much because you still have a ton of other cash you, you can use productively. And if the house prices drop 50%, it's a tiny fraction of your personal net worth. Not a big deal. Uh, and I've seen, I see this a lot with rich people. If you have a lot of money and your house is only a small fraction of your worth or your net wealth, um, you actually don't want a mortgage because you don't want any burdens or impediments to your claim to title of that property. In other words, the contracts and legal complications are more of a risk than the upside of whatever you could uh, do with the cash proceeds of that mortgage. So don't even bother with it. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And again, it comes down to, you know, you've got the, when it comes to mortgages, you've got the the Dave Ramsey camp, and then you've got the Robert Kiyosaki camp. And it's like, they're both right, depending on your situation. That's what it comes down to. You know, pick your situation as it applies best so you can leverage the money best for you. Um, you know, and that's, I mean, that's a TLDR of everything you just said. Uh, but it could be used to, to generate you more money or it could just, it could hurt you. Use it, use it accordingly. Yeah, totally agree. Just keep in mind the inflationary regime that we're in. Uh, so in that circumstance, if you get a mortgage opportunity at three and a half percent and inflation over the next 15 years is going to be north of three and a half percent, man, that's a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we brought, we bought our first house, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. And it was like, I think we'd wind up paying, we, we bought it cash because it was under $50,000 and we, we couldn't get a mortgage for it. It was too, too uh, small. So we wound up paying cash for it. And it was a really good deal for the way, uh, for, for where we were living. And because of that, we had so much extra money left over. We were able to, over the next couple of years, save money to get the SBA loans. And then later, you know, buy bigger homes on a mortgage and keep the uh, main principal to be able to reinvest. So we've definitely gone both ways. And um, either way can work. One of, one of the things, just kind of changing topics, uh, one of the things that was really driving me nuts this week was uh, just trying to use my printer. 
Um, and it absolutely ruined my day uh, because I really had something really important that I had to scan. Uh, it took me an hour just to troubleshoot all the problems with my printer and its stupid uh, printer app. Um, and even just like logging in, it was totally ridiculous. And, and I just wanted to throw my computer and throw my printer. Uh, I was so mad. And I, I just started thinking about like, I, I know other people are having these problems, um, but it's not just limited to printers. It's like the overarching theme. Everything, everything is low quality now. We, it seems like we're getting into this phase of technological regression uh, instead of tech deflation, right? As we get better at building things, we should be, things should be higher quality. <laughs> they should be more useful, not less useful. And so I was thinking about, gosh, what, what other stuff is, is uh, fitting into that? And I started thinking about like home appliances, like fridges and washers and dryers, but soon to be cars, like cars built five years from now will be far less reliable than today, especially because we won't, we won't be allowed to own them, right? Uh, you will, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. There will be a kill switch in your car that, that shuts it off when your social credit score drops too low. Um, and so even if we buy them, we'll just be renting until our rentership is revoked. Well, and that's even, even without the, uh, social credit score nightmare that's coming, just the general incompetency that flows with uh, overly complex systems. So already, uh, I think it's BMW or Mercedes, they're putting out cars now where you have to have a subscription service to get heated seats going. Then you need a subscription service to unlock the governor on the car so you can drive faster. Well, aside from that being just you know, capitalism gone evil, it's also what happens when there's a, a glitch or a hack or something where your um, your subscription accidentally gets canceled or changed on you or just the incompetence on their end and you wind up losing access to the features of your vehicle even though you've done nothing wrong um and it just gets shut shut off what happens when they have a cyber attack and just shut off ten thousand cars or a hundred thousand cars like nobody's thinking through the consequences they're just looking at it saying how do i get more money out of this process um I mean, it was bad enough uh, leasing vehicles versus, versus buying them. Leasing was always a good way to lose lots of money on a car uh, versus buying the car. Now you're getting into you're buying a car and you still don't own the you still don't own it. It's insane. Yeah, I think this is just a new iteration on the outsourcing model um, that we had for the last 20, 30 years. Right? We outsourced our ind industrial base to China and, and Southeast Asia and we're paying for it. Now we can't build anything. Even worse, we're, we're further behind than that. We don't even have the know-how to build anything. We don't know how, build, how to build the equipment to set up our own factories to start building. <laughs> so it's like yeah. you, there's this carrot right in front of your face and you follow it off a cliff. Uh, it feels like the same thing with products these days. So, um, man, I, I just feel like people are starting to get wise to it. Obviously, there was a little frog in the pot for a while, but uh, I think one of the overarching themes of our podcast is people are waking up and they're starting to ask questions and they're talking to other people who are asking questions and the truth is getting shared. Uh, so man, a huge opportunity for somebody to build quality products because people are going to start paying really close attention to it and they're going to pay a little more because they understand they want their car to work. <laughs> yeah. And it's just such a crazy process that it went through. It went from mass producing items of high quality to, are producing items of high quality, mass producing items of low quality that were cheaper. And then it got greedy and said, all right, let's mass produce cheap stuff, but then add subscription models to it. Like, and it's not just, just printers and cars. Um, look at the video game industry. When we were children, you'd buy a, a video game cartridge, you'd buy a Nintendo or Sega cartridge and you know, you'd play it till you beat it, whatever. The game only had to be good enough that you would recommend it to your friends. You'd, you'd buy it once, and they they make the money only one time. Now, all video games are a subscription. You buy the game, and then you have to have a monthly subscription to unlock extra features, and then they, they took the model even further into your phone to where we have games that are nothing but dopamine generators. They don't do anything. They don't end. There's no story or plot to them. There's nothing, but you just keep pushing buttons for, for your little farm or for your Candy Crush or whatever you're doing to keep the game going, and it has artificial dopamine uh, producers, artificial achievements that amount to nothing, and it's all subscription-based, and it's just... We're getting away from even giving you a quality product at a price to just giving you a dopamine production uh, so that you keep keep paying. Yeah, exactly. This is part and parcel of the, the that theme I keep talking about, feudal SaaS or <laughs> feudal software as a service. Everything's turning into it. 
Um, it just creates a society of serfs. You don't get to own anything. Uh, you're addicted or enslaved, um, and you sacrificed your God-given right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. All for a dopamine hit. <laughs> yeah, or or an ease in lifestyle, right? It's that they they uh, they lure you into the trap with something that looks like a, a convenience or or an improvement in your life, and then you quickly realize, or you over time realize that it was a terrible mistake, and now they own you. Just keep start. Start paying attention to these things if you're not noticing them already. Notice all the ways that the system is uh, is creeping up on you and enslaving you, and making sure that you can't get out. And make sure that if you're if you're still invested in any of those areas, you know you're building on someone else's land, and you have to have an escape plan, and you have to know that it's temporary because otherwise they're going to trap you. It's just it's just a given. <laughs> yeah, and it, but it also opens up new business opportunities as well for people who want to provide quality and are willing to accept a cap on, on how much money they're going to make for said service, which almost sounds contradictory, especially in the Wi-Fi world of, of entering into a, a situation where there's a limit to how much money you can make, but there's a lot of money to be made. If you're not willing, if you're not going to go full greed on it, like, um, Millennials and Gen Xers are getting hit with a lot of nostalgia right now. There's a lot of nostalgia-based products. Um, a couple of years ago, they they put out that Nintendo Mini, where it was like the 20 most popular games on the original Nintendo, and you could play it on the little console. And then there's uh, more products coming out for so you can play the older Sega games, the older Atari, for whatever you were playing when you were a kid. Now, these games are a lot less addicting than what's currently available on the Xbox and PlayStation, but a lot of people don't want to play these overly complicated thousand hour games. If a game producer were to come out and put out Nintendo quality games and just new stuff for you to play, all the nostalgia chasers would go after it. And, and it would be a one-time thing, right? You put out the game, it'd be a one-time fad, you'd make some money off of it, and then you'd have to go to the new thing. It's it's definitely got a limit. But it's just one example of how you could cash in on nostalgia with a quality product if you're not gonna if you're willing to not farm it out to the to the SAS feudal SAS system and just just take a, a small win. Yeah. Absolutely. And that could be done with so many products out there. Yep. Yep. Quality matters again, which is and it, it's a cool thing to be able to say. Right. Usually you you never get to say that. Quality matters again. Relationships matter. Communities matter. Resilient, robust, anti-fragile systems and supply chains are worth paying for. Yeah, and when you're willing to produce those items, you will get the loyalty of the people. Uh who buy them from you. You know, I, I buy a lot of handcrafted stuff now from my neighbors, you know, um, locally produced honey, handcrafted uh, goat milk soap, things of that nature. Yeah, I can go to the store and buy the equivalent things for immensely cheaper, but the quality is so much better from the local producers that I'm willing to pay more. And in some cases, things cost a lot less. Uh, I buy my cows directly from the rancher down the road and it's a much better quality cow than I'll ever get inside a grocery store. And it costs me you know, a third of the price. Yeah. Um, just trying to think of some, some high level takeaways from this podcast. I mean, I keep hitting on these points. I, I can't tell you how fundamentally life-changing they are. The ability to own your own business um, and, and do it very quickly uh, so that you're in control of your destiny um, just a quick, a couple of quick stats to throw out to tell you how big the opportunity is here. There's this thing called the silver tsunami, uh, which is essentially what we've been talking about, the cascade of boomers retiring. Um, and uh, it's, um, I think I saw some numbers. It was like something point, like about 8 million small businesses in the U.S. and boomers have maybe close to two, two and a half of them, two and a, two and a half million of them. Um, and like maybe three quarters of them are, are, fairly profitable. So they're not just a, a, a wage for the owner. Um, and then I think like 25% of them are expecting an ownership change in the next five years. Um, and, uh, I would say, I, th I think I saw another stat that was like almost half of small businesses have owners over 65% or 65. And, uh, I mean, it, these, these businesses have to go somewhere. We've talked about how their kids don't want to take them. Uh, it's just right there and the SBA is going to help you do it. Uh, don't put up with a crappy boss or crappy employer any longer. You can jump out and do this right away. Yeah. And, you know, we're, 
it's not exactly like we're, we're two people who are ever going to root for the government or big banking systems, but use those systems to your advantage. And the small business lending apparatus is one to use to your advantage for sure. Um, and we've hammered it before. There's lots of other ways to raise money. And of course, you could always just bankroll it yourself. But while it exists in this still relatively low low interest rate environment and relatively easy lending environment, nothing's strictly easy, but while it's all relatively easy and low, leverage the SBA to your advantage uh, if it's some, if it's something you can make work to your advantage. Yeah, totally agree. And of course, that being said, not financial advice. This is you know just just our opinion, but it's worked well for me. It's likely going to work well for Remington soon too. So, at that, uh, we're going to wrap this episode up. Thank you guys for listening. Um, you can reach us on Wi-Fi underscore pioneers at twitter go ahead give us a like a follow tell us uh, what you think about the episode um, we want to hear from you we want to be challenging our ideas and at that have a good day remember you can exit the system you can win